Well, it's a privilege to be with you today. Uh, when I was asked this summer if I would take part and saw that it was November 3rd, I said, well, um, that's a theme that could go along with guarding the truth, guard the truth. But I'd like to just focus on the fact that we guard the faith as we stand for the faith. We guard the faith as we stand for the faith. And in light of the day being Monday, Reformation Day, you, you almost, your mind just goes to the stand of what took place uh, that started with the posting of the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517, and later the stand that Luther took before the emperor. And when we think of standing for the faith, that's one of those things that has emboldened itself in the history of the church. And so I would, Dr. Horn spoke in University Chapel last week, and he said, um, I want to uh, tell a few illustrations, and then I want to give three simple truths. Well, I'm going to reverse that. I want to give three simple truths, and then I want to illustrate some truths from church history. So, um, while I'm not going to focus on Paul's letter to Timothy, which is the theme of guard the faith, I would like us to focus on a parallel passage from Paul to the church of Ephesus. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, we have this passage that I'd like us to just briefly consider. And that is, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against, the, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take upon you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand therefore with your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darks of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The passage goes on and says we need prayer to see men all this armor together. Uh, as we stand for God. So, three simple thoughts about guarding and standing for the faith. First of all, could I say that we are engaged in a spiritual struggle? Now think about that struggle. That struggle, you know, it's talking about the wiles of the devil. That's not a struggle. That's a battle. But we struggle with our flesh. Uh, this passage talks about spiritual wickedness. It talks about how we are to engage in this struggle. We're to stand against. We're to wrestle against. We're to withstand in an evil day. Uh, we're to quench the fiery darts. We're in a battle. Whether we have enlisted or not, we're in that battle for the faith. Um, we see in this passage also that we are empowered with spiritual strength. 
verse 10 says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Didn't we just sing the words of Luther? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Yet how many times do we try to wage the battle of the faith through our own strength? I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the greatest struggles I face, wanting to do things my way, wanting to do the work of the Lord how I think it should be done instead of taking on the armor of God. We're to be strong in the Lord, and we're to be strong in the power of his might. And then we are equipped with spiritual armor to stand. Now, that makes a neat outline, but I don't like that last point because it implies we are equipped, but the passage says, put on. Doesn't mean that automatically have it. That means there's an effort to equip what God has provided, but it doesn't mean that I automatically have it. And so there's an action that needs to be done of God's provided, but are, have we taken advantage of that spiritual armor? And what is that armor? Well, we find that my grandson would love this picture. You know what he'd love about this picture? All the items that are on the far side, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the sword, the shield, and the shoes, he would love to wear that. He would be wearing that even as he goes to bed. I mean, he's always got a sword in his hand. And this is the equipment, and, it, and we're told to put it on wholly so there's, there's no weakness. And I'm not going to go into all the meaning behind why the helmet is pointing to the, uh, of salvations at the head and all that. But what I would like to point out is often... We got caught up like my grandson in the armor. Boy, it's fun to have a sword. It's fun to have a helmet. Um, but this is an interesting picture that Paul was very familiar with in his day. <laughs> Paul probably knew more soldiers in more prisons than anybody in his day. Throughout the Mediterranean world, if there was a prison and there was a Roman guard, he was well familiar with them. So he could describe this with great familiarity. And it symbolizes, really, the might of the Roman armor, army that conquered uh, the Mediterranean world. And it did it with the armor. It did it with, did it with the masses of Roman soldiers and the legions. They were very good at it until Rome fell. Then what happened? What was the means of defense when there was no longer Rome? Well, then we get into the Middle Ages, and you have castles. And I love castles. I love visiting castles. I wouldn't want to live there, but they're neat to see. But there was castles until something called artillery comes along. And artillery then ruins the castle walls. Um, so you have artillery. And then you have 
kings and queens moving out of castles into palaces, which are not for protection, but they then have large standing armies. And let's marshal all our large standing armies, like back in the day of Rome, until you invent stuff like machine guns, uh, mortars. And then we have things like tanks and planes and warships. And then you have smart weapons. And then you could just nuke them. So it seems like whatever means of weapons or defenses man has developed, there's always one more. There's always, nothing's ever secure in human means for weapons or for defense. Just a couple of years ago, um, we had here for a forum on campus a colonel in the U.S. Air Force that was speaking here. I got to spend some time with him. And I asked him, what, are your, what have been your specific responsibilities while in the Air Force? That's fascinating. This man was in charge of the defense of America's airplanes. And he made the statement that around the world, America is known for its military power, and the symbol of that are our airplanes that can go anywhere in the world and deliver any amount of firepower at a moment's notice. But then he said, 95% of the time, those planes are on the ground. And it's my job to protect them, wherever they are in the world. That's what he was over. You know, I never thought about that. Then he told a story. He was on a training mission uh, with uh, NATO and other European powers. This was before Ukraine. Russia was involved in that. And their counterparts from all these different countries were involved in this training mission and think tanks, so so to speak. And he was partnered with his counterpart from Russia. And as they worked together during the week, Uh, The Russian asked him, well, where have you served uh, in the military? And he said, well, before I was in my current position, I served in uh, Air Force Base in the United Kingdom, which he said my father and my grandfather both served in England, which was interesting. Um, and, And you know how international rivalries go. The Russian uh, then took out a piece of paper and he took out a pen, and he just started drawing on the table. And he drew a picture of the Air Force base this man has served on in England. And he drew that picture, and then he made some, your nukes are kept here. Your other weapons are kept here. We know everything about you. He then said, I grabbed the pen. He said, what you don't know is right there, we had these forces ready to take you out because we knew that's what you would probably do. And over here, we had a counter. And the thought struck me. What we were guarding our country with had to be guarded. Um, an illustration of this is that Paul says, we've got to be careful because we're not dealing with just the weapons of the flesh. 
If they were, those weapons of the flesh are constantly changing. But we're dealing with spiritual warfare. And when I think of that, you sum all this up, you go back to this. Is it really the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the sword, the shield, and the shoes that we ought to be concerned about? If my grandson, yes. But is the armor really salvation, righteousness, truth, spirit, faith, and peace? And in a sense, as we're guarding the faith, isn't that the faith? And isn't the faith that helps enable us to guard the faith. In England, uh, in London, is the Tower of London. And the Tower of London is both the um, residence, was the residence of the British, uh, the English monarch, uh, both the royal armory as well as the place for the crown jewels, uh, which symbolizes the British throne. And it's an amazing um, fortress, started the tower by William the Conqueror way back in 1066, and then built around this central tower, the keep, if you want to call it that. The keep is the central place that you guard, like the goalkeeper guards the soccer goal, the keep. Uh, Around that is barracks, a walled barracks for garrison of soldiers. Around that is a moat and an outer wall. And over the years, being the residence of the monarch, the, um, the, those that protected it uh, developed what was called the royal armory. And so you have the knights and the Um, the suits of armor that are housed there today. It is a royal armory museum. Uh, But originally, where your armor was is what you wanted to protect. And what you wanted to protect was not only the monarch. Later, the monarch said, I don't want to live in, in a castle. I want to go to a palace. So let's go to Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle. Uh, Let's go to something more livable. But it's interesting, they left behind the armory and the crown jewels. This summer, I was there. And in what was the former barracks of the soldiers that protected this keep is where the crown jewels are kept. And boy... um, I I like the picture where you have the cannon there. That's outside where you enter that. Notice what the soldier is wearing. A bow and arrow. I don't know what the the equivalent of an M16, but he's got a rapid-fire gun there. So I, I love the contrast. But then you can go through and see all the crown jewels. But boy, I've been there many times. Every time I go in, now my wife, she loves to look at the crown jewels. And you and because so many crowds there, you get on a conveyor belt and it takes you through, sort of you stand there like an escalator and you go through and wow, wow, wow. And she knows enough now to get, and you can go around and get on again and go through on the other side and look at them again and again and again. Meanwhile, I'm curious, I'm looking around. Okay, there's a sensor, there's a camera, there's a guard, 
I'm just saying, how are you going to guard this? For in this, the crown jewels in this barracks are 23,000 gems. Um, We saw just recently with the death of Queen Elizabeth. Did you see that? Did you see what was placed on top of her casket? It was the coronation crown. That one crown has almost 2,500 diamonds, 273 pearls, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 5 rubies. Wow. And it's neat to see. The coronation robe made of gold thread. I don't understand what I just said. But wow, it glistens. It's estimated value of all this into the billions of dollars. Now, why do I say that? Because in a sense, the residence of the king and the protection of the king and the symbols of the king are worth guarding. And as we consider then this of putting on the armor, think of what we're guarding. If we say the faith is, the faith represents faith in our God, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we have something greater in value. But we cannot protect it with the arms of the flesh. Why? We're in a spiritual battle. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So how are we going to take a stand? How are we going to take a stand? By first of all, putting on the whole armor of God. And while while human armor has changed down through the centuries, the spiritual battle and the spiritual armor is the same as in Paul's day. We're fighting with the same spiritual weapons. And the faith that will enable us to stand is the faith which we're standing for. And thus, that will take us to our historical example of men and women who stood for the faith in the past. And in a sense, It is that faith, it is our faith that empowers us to take a stand for the faith. Now, in the city of Worms in Germany is one of the, I think, best monuments uh, to the Protestant Reformation. This and the Geneva Wall uh, in Geneva, uh, the Reformers Wall in Geneva. Uh, But of course, what do you see in the middle? Uh, The standing of Luther. Almost every East German city associated with Luther's life, notice what I just said, East German city, under the, the, the long-time control of the communist, they left the statue of Luther there because of his contribution to the German people. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But you see, find all over that area statues of Luther standing, and that goes back to what took place in Worms just 501 years ago. And that is, it was uh, the assembly of the emperor and the uh, chief bishops 
cardinals are going to come to Worms and an imperial diet. And there Luther is going to stand before them. And I wish I could go into that, but simply put, when asked whether he would recant of the writings that he has his hand on, he says, unless I'm convinced by the scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then later historians will write, or he, some of his friends will write, he turns and says, here I stand. And he stood. And the other reformers are going to take a stand. And they're going to stand for something. Just as the New Testament church stood for something, just as we're to stand for something today. What did they stand for? They stand and they stood for reasserting biblical authority and that impacted the foundation of the church. Of course, we know in the day in which they lived, uh, biblical authority was not the prominent authority. Uh, they stood by re-energizing um, biblical preaching impacting the heart of the church. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Um, again, Paul admonishes Timothy, preach the word. We're going to see what are we to do in the last days when people are going to turn and have the, want their ears tickled with all the um, babbling of the world. And it's going to, again, preach the word. Give sound doctrine. And so the reformers are going to re-energize biblical preaching. They're going to revive biblical evangelism, impacting the outreach of the church. Again, the medieval day, how was their method of, of, of expanding the church? Well, that was take up the sword and go fight the crusades. Uh, we have a crusade, and that's we need to wield the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. We're going to see that they stood for re-emphasizing biblical morality impacting the purity of the church. And it, it, and it was in their day, as it was as Paul talks to the church at Corinth, so we know in our day, uh, the need for biblical morality. We live in a corrupt world. Um, it got so bad in their day that they would say, the church is so corrupt and the church responded, well, then it has to be the true church. How could something so corrupt stand? And you go, what? But this was the argument made in that day. But God has enjoined upon us to live pure lives, and that's part of this righteousness that we're to put on in Christ that will enable us to stand. They took a stand by restoring biblical worship, impacting the practice of the church. Um, Dr. Coleman could go on and on about this idea of biblical worship that comes out of the Reformation. And so much, again, in contrast to the day of Luther and the medieval day, it was you go to church as a spectacle. You don't go to church to participate. Um, the hymns were in a language they could not sing, and the congregation did not sing them. 
But now the reformers and Luther is going to emphasize the need of participation in worship. <laughs> Brethren, we have met to worship, not be Sunday football spectators. We're not in an arena to be spectators. We're to be participators, and they're going to restore that practice. They're going to renew a biblical worldview impacting the outlook of the church. And what I mean by that, during the Middle Ages, the church taught that we're just in this world to endure, to just get by. Just to, this world's not our home. We're going to get to heaven, but just endure in this life. But that, that's not the Protestant work ethic. That means whatever thy hand finds to do, do it. Why? Because we're glorifying God. And they're going to, for me to live, that's this world, is Christ to die his gain. A true worldview is going to say we live rightly in this world as we prepare for the next, but not we're just enduring. And they're going to reaffirm biblical doctrine impacting the teaching, the theology of the church, which had been so attacked during the medieval days through the deception, just on the person of Christ, on the nature of the scriptures, of the definition of what is the church, the sacraments, what is a saint, uh, what is preaching, evangelism, and worship. All these things were under attack. Are they under attack in our day as well? And why do we need to take a stand? Because we need to guard the faith. Now, I say this because the reformers are going to stand against something. And if we're going to stand for something, we've got to stand against something. This is a wall on a, a, in a small chapel of Calvin's church in Geneva. And a beautiful room, chapel, but on the wall it has the Latin post tenebras lux, which basically means after darkness, light. And the Reformation is going to stand against the darkness of the medieval world by upholding the light of Christ and his word. They're going to stand against the religious distortion of the medieval world by guarding the truth of Christ and his word. They're going to stand against the doubt and uphold the assurance that we have in Christ and his word. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Luther is often going to express before his salvation, he questioned, he wondered, he, he, it, it just doesn't seem so that I can earn my salvation. Have I done enough good works? Have I done it sincerely enough? But later, though Fanny Crosby had not been there, he could say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Um, they stood for against the despair and the hopelessness of the medieval world. How do I know I have standing with God? And they're going to give the hope that we have in Christ and his word. And in a sense, we'll see that the reformers were equipped with the armor of God. And with that whole armor equipment, they stood for the truth of God. They stood for the authority of Scripture. They stood for faith in Christ. They stood for grace of God. And they stood for the redemption that is in Christ. And if you know your Reformation, then you can just see that as they bring glory to God, then these are those 
five solas of the Reformation. These are the Reformation truths, which were true in the day of the New Testament. And they stood for that truth in the time of the Reformation. And we need to stand with that truth today. I want to close with three cities in Germany that begin with W. Well, one's not a city. But they all go back to Luther's stand. If you take a stand, oh, that's famous. Look what he's doing. He's standing. He's standing before the most powerful man of his day, and he took a stand. But what happens next? And I want to show you visual picture of what happened next and drive some truths home to us. Because he took a stand, but after he left the Diet of Worms, they're going to declare him an outlaw of the state, put a death penalty sentence upon him. And anybody could have the right to put him to death with the order of the emperor but we know the story that God raised up a prince that is going to kidnap him and take him to Wartburg Castle. Dr. Coleman may know more. I don't know. I've walked around those walls and wondered. Luther walked around those walls. I think maybe 10 years later he rode a mighty fortress, but did he have in mind these walls? that he was so familiar with with during his stay there. By the way, his stay there was a detour in his life. He didn't want to be there. He had not planned to be there. But yet, in a detour of Luther's life, in this little room, God's going to use him to faithfully stand for the truth of the word of God. And he's going to translate the Bible into German. And you have the result of that, the German Bible there. I literally, and if I think about it, I'll get there. I was in tears when I was in this room, in that room. I was thinking about Luther. He didn't want to be there. And there's many times in our lives we don't want to be places that God has put us in. But I dare say, and I'm not the Lord, I dare say God did more through his time at Wartburg Castle in translating the Bible into the language of the Germans than anything else that he did in his lifetime. The detours of our life can be one of the most profitable times if we'll take a stand for the faith. That's a side point. What I wanted to show you this is if we take a stand, it's going to cost us something. Now, Luther was under a death penalty. Uh, We know that Savonarola, Huss, other reformers were put to death, Tyndale. But if we take a stand, it's going to cost us something. And we think all the great about taking the stand. That's what Luther did at the Diet. But he then experienced the time at Wartburg before he went back to, Luther, uh, to Wittenberg. 
So let's now go back to Worms and a little plaque where the site commemorates where he took his stand before the Kaiser and the realm. Declared an outlaw, but you compare that picture to another picture. 26 years later, Luther meets again Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, met him in person in Worms, 1521, but in 1547, the emperor meets Luther in Wittenberg. Only Luther died the year before that. And you see Luther standing on the authority of the word of God. You see the emperor pointing down to the grave of Luther. Now, here's my point. The most powerful man of his day, Charles V, declared Luther a heretic. Excuse me, the church declared him a heretic. He declared him an outlaw. Death sentence. Put him to death. And Luther died a natural death in 1546 under a death penalty? How do you explain that? How do you explain Luther died a natural death? Because God is fighting a bigger battle than us, than using us. The battle is God's battle. And while God wants to use us in our place of service, God is orchestrating events of history to accomplish his purpose. And Charles V was ready to let Luther have it. He was ready to let the German princes have it. Oh, but then there's this guy named the King of France, and then there's the Turks, and they preoccupied the Holy Roman Emperor so he couldn't get around to it for 25 years. And by then, the work of God became established as men and women stood for the faith. Let me close with this. Philip Schaff, the famous church historian, said, one man with truth on his side is stronger than a majority in error and will conquer in the end. God's truth will win out. Let us be faithful to take a stand. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you deign to use us to do thy work. We pray that we would properly equip ourselves because we know we're wrestling with those foes that are greater than our flesh. In the wiles of, the, of Satan, the fiery darts, we need thy truth. We need thy righteousness. We need a strong faith that will enable us to stand. And during these days of study, of preparation, we pray that this might be a time where we could be fully equipped to go out and serve thee. And from the example of those men and women from the past, may we be just as bold and courageous to take a stand for thy truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.